Well, our Savior said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. I want to thank you for being in the house of the Lord today, joining us for worship as we seek to lift high the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to welcome those in the East Venue, those that are joining us online. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. I want to ask you to take your Bibles. Let's turn together again to the Gospel Narrative of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, as we continue our series, Upside Down, Living the Blessed Life. Upside Down, Living the Blessed Life. As you're finding your place there, want to remind you, if you can, just take an opportunity today to express uh, your love and appreciation to Colton and Sidney Taylor for their service to the Lord through Liberty Baptist Church and their investment in our student ministry, our families, for the last six, almost seven years. Uh, Today is his last official Sunday at Liberty as he recently accepted another position at another church to begin a new ministry opportunity there. And so we are so very grateful for their investment to the Lord, to our students and our student families in these last few years. So uh, pray for them and pray for us as we begin a new journey and pray that God will be glorified in it all and through it all. Thank you. Yes. Matthew chapter 5, we jump back into the Beatitudes. You may recall from last week that Jesus introduced this great sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7 in Matthew, with these things called the Beatitudes in verses 1 through 10. In these, Jesus really paints a picture of a kingdom righteousness or the type of righteousness that we are called to live as the children of God and the kind of lifestyle that finds God's favor and God's approval. And Jesus speaks these beatitudes and eight blessing proclamations that he gives. I said last week, I want to remind us as we unpack them one beatitude at a time, the first four kind of have a vertical upward look and deal with our heartbeat and our relationship with our Heavenly Father. The second four kind of have a horizontal outlook that as God has transformed our hearts and we embrace this kingdom righteousness, it's how we relate to those that are around us. And as we study and realize the meaning behind the Beatitudes in this Sermon on the Mount, we realize that this life that Jesus calls us to live appears to be really weird and upside down to a world around us that is broken in sinful rebellion. We will note that Jesus does not talk about receiving power and status and fame. Jesus is not commissioning and equipping his followers to push others down as we make our way to the top. In fact, Jesus is calling us, those who follow him, to take on his character and his nature, one of humility, one of obedience, and one of mercy toward those around us. So in this world that promotes and even celebrates selfish and sinful living, this is really upside-down kind of living. But Jesus' teachings, as we read and study the Bible about kingdom living, often turn conventional thinking, worldly thinking, on its head. Now, as believers, keep in mind that as we unpack the Beatitudes, these are character traits that we already have in Christ. 
Uh, this is already true about us, yet they're not ma mature, they're not complete. These Beatitudes represent both who we are now and what we're growing up to be. So there's an already and a not yet uh, impact of the Beatitudes. Somebody explained it like this. These Beatitudes for the child of God are like oversized clothing. You remember that from last week that I shared? Maybe you don't because I was not in here at 9.15, was I? And so uh, it's like buying oversized clothing. A lot of times for, for our young children and our growing adolescents, we plan ahead in order to be good stewards of God's resources of money. Uh, we buy clothes maybe just a little bit too big, knowing that they're growing and they're going to grow up into them. Well, picture these beatitudes like that for you and I as children of God. This is, in reality, who we are in Christ. This is ours Yet they're not fully grown. They're not mature. We're still growing up into these beatitudes. And so already and not yet. If you have your sermon notes, there's a statement that's printed there, either uh, through the uh, app digitally or in print online. Here's the statement. We kind of framed the beatitudes for our series with this statement. Here it is. The beatitudes are a picture of Jesus. So they point beyond themselves to Christ. The Beatitudes are a pattern for believers to be and grow into. And so it's a reality of who we are in Christ, but it's the reality of what we're growing up to be in Christ. And it's also an upside-down plan for living this blessed life. So if we're going to be like Jesus and grow up to be like Christ, we realize to the world around us it's going to be strange and it's going to be kind of upside-down thinking and living. Now, we go to Beatitude number 2, and we're going to read about it in God's Word. So, Matthew 5, I want to read verses 1 through 4, verse 4 being our focal point this morning. If you're able to stand, I invite you to stand as we honor God's Word that is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, and this Word is life-giving. So, let's hear the Word of God. Verse 1, chapter 5, And seeing the multitudes, he, Jesus, went up to a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be, what? Comforted. Let's pray. Father, help us take maybe familiar words and a familiar passage and find current application. Create in us that clean heart, O oh God, and renew that steadfast spirit within us. Continue to conform us into the image of your Son and our Savior and help us to grow into who we are in Christ in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Numerous times each day a question often comes my way, and, and here's the question. You hear it too. How are you? And many times I respond quite sincerely, oh, I'm just blessed. I'm blessed. But that is a word that might be confused in our culture today as to what it means. In fact, the world of social media may define this word bless as success when life is good. For example, good job, hashtag blessed. Healthy family, hashtag blessed. If 
financial abundance, hashtag blessed, and you get the idea. But for the children of God, this word blessed biblically means far more than life is good and success by the standards that this world defines. The Greek word, as we mentioned last week, translated blessed is makarios, and it literally means to be happy, to be fortunate, or to be fully satisfied. Now, that sounds good, right? But even those, those some translations that we read the Beatitudes in might start with, happy are those who mourn. And that's kind of weird, isn't it? Happy are the unhappy. But happy are those who mourn. We need to be careful with understanding what that word really means, blessed. It's more than just a circumstantial feeling of happiness, that when life is good, we're happy. But what happens when life is not good? Those who are blessed are genuinely, profoundly happy. However, blessedness cannot be reduced to merely circumstantial happiness. You still with me? Jesus then is not declaring about how people feel, our emotions. Rather, he is making an objective statement about what God thinks of them. This word blessed really is a positive judgment by God on an individual that really means approval or favor of God. So the opposite of blessed is not unhappy. The opposite of blessed is cursed. So we begin to understand the depth and the magnitude of this word blessed. And, and since God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, isn't it pretty awesome that when you hear Scripture says that this creator can call a people blessed? That is the highest blessing that we can receive, right? And so the first beatitude last week made clear that entrance into the kingdom of heaven begins with that heart that is poor in spirit, that recognition that we are indeed spiritually bankrupt. And the only way any person can come to Jesus Christ is empty-handed, totally destitute, pleading for God's mercy and God's grace. In other words, we bring nothing to the table for our salvation except a life that is wrecked by sinful rebellion. That's all we have. And we beg upon a God of mercy and a God of grace who is sovereign and holy and righteous to have mercy on us. Without a sense of spiritual poverty, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven. And that ought to start sending off some alarms to everybody who hears it and an internal question being asked, have I reached that point ever in my life that I realized I have nothing but a broken life messed up by sinful rebellion, but there is a God who can fix that and who longs to rescue me. And when we enter the kingdom of heaven, we should never lose sense of being poor in spirit. This is an attitude that grows as we grow up in Christ. We become more aware that we brought nothing to the table, that indeed we were and we are poor in spirit. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, I need my water. Romans chapter 7 and verse 18, he says, There's nothing good, thank you, Don, that dwells in us. Nothing good that is in my flesh, right? And so our attitude as we grow closer to Christ must always be, All that I am, I am by the grace of God. 
poor in spirit. But here's the natural overflow of that. Poor in spirit leads to godly sorrow. Blessed are the poor in spirit, hands off to blessed are those who mourn. All I had to do is think about drinking drink of water and I got better, right? So on your sermon notes, that's the intro. This is number one. This upside down life. Beatitude number two. Blessed are those who mourn. We need to unpack that. The condition of this beatitude is mourning. Not M-O-R-N-I-N-G. Some of you are allergic to that one too, but M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. There is a close connection of this second beatitude with the first one. The first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, is primarily intellectually. This is the truth we know intellectually and embrace. We have nothing to offer for our salvation. But we're in desperate need of a Savior. We're spiritually bankrupt. The second beatitude, blessed are those who are mourners, primarily emotional. God has given us emotions. They are gifts from Him. And so when we see ourselves as spiritually bankrupt, poor in spirit, then our emotions begin to grieve and mourn over that condition. Commentator John Stott put it this way, It's one thing to be poor and acknowledge it. To be poor in spirit and acknowledge it. But it's quite another thing to grieve and mourn over it. We can put it in some theological words. It's one thing to confess and agree with God that we're sinners. But it's a whole nother level to be broken and contrite in heart over the sin that we know is real. Mourning in general, just big picture, indicates pain and grief and anxiety that we all experience in this thing called life because of loss. And there are a lot of reasons that we experience loss. So on one hand, mourning is just part of the human experience, and we feel deep sorrow oftentimes in life. Let's just unpack how that happens. There are difficulties in life that come. Sometimes it's loss of possession. If you've ever been so unfortunate to have a house fire and lose those things, maybe your whole home and everything in it, uh, there is mourning, there is heavy grief and sorrow that takes place. It could be burglary, it could be identity theft, there's loss and there's mourning. It, it could be status, it could be job loss and there's grief that comes with that. It could be through retirement. If you're the president and CEO of the company or a VP of a company and you go from being the boss and then you retire and you come home and you're a slave to a to-do list, there's loss. There's an adjustment there. There's grief. There's mourning that happens. It could be health. You could hear that word cancer that none of us want to hear. It could be the death of a loved one that too many of us know about. People mourn over disaster. And, and as Jared mentioned in the prayer time, this great disaster of an earthquake in Turkey and Syria that has rocked them. And, and is one of the most devastating earthquakes in all of history. And the death toll is over 21,000 now. It could be lost from a tornado or hurricane. But you get the idea. Of there are difficulties in life and a variety of reasons that we mourn. But this one is different. 
They're non-Greek terms in the original language of the New Testament that identify mourning or sorrow. And this one is pentheo, and it is the most severe emotion. It's the one that's linked more with the death of someone we love. In the Greek Old Testament, in the Septuagint, it's the word that described Jacob's grief when he thought his son Joseph was killed by a wild animal in Genesis 37. It's that deep gut emotion that all of the disciples of Jesus had after Friday, and he died on the cross and before Sunday morning when they realized that he was risen from the dead. This is the grief on steroids. This word carries that deep, guttural inner agony. It's the deepest level of mourning. It's not always expressed openly and outwardly by weeping and lamenting and wailing. Keep that in mind. Understand, though, that the Bible does not say that this mourning or grief is a more blessed state. In other words, sorrow is not more blessed than laughter. Keep that in mind. This is a mourning that Jesus wants us to understand. It's to be a part of who we are in Christ. To mourn, then, is not synonymous with a sad disposition. Jesus did not say, blessed are the grim, cheerless Baptist. (laughs) Though some Baptists have interpreted that way. Because they walk around with a perpetual frown on their face, looking like they've sucked a lemon all night before coming to church. Jesus is not speaking of an outward demeanor. Rather, he's looking in the heart and the condition of the heart over this thing called sin. So exactly what kind of mourning is our Savior talking about in this sermon? Glad you asked. Have an answer. It's a reality in life. We all experience some levels of mourning. Difficulties in life bring it. But Jesus is speaking of a deep sorrow that looks beyond the normal difficulties in life that come to all. He's especially talking about a deep mourning over sin. When I ask, when's the last time you wept over sin of any kind? Number two on our notes, the blessed life that we're called to live, we mourn over the sin within us. We mourn over the sin around us, and we mourn over the suffering that sin brings. Sin within us this morning is about personal grief over personal sin. This is the mourning experienced by the, a person who begins to recognize the darkness of their own spiritual condition. When, a, when we see God for who He is, high and lifted up, Holy, holy, holy. When we get a glimpse of the God that Scripture paints for us, then we get a true picture of our position. Woe is me, for I am undone. For every time there is the clarity of the glory of God, there is also the clarity of the sinfulness of man. And so it's that Isaiah chapter 6 kind of recognition that when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, his response is, woe is me, for I'm undone. I am lost. 
I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Woe is me. I want to ask you, dear church, as Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. When's the last time in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, you just push back from the table and say, oh, God, have mercy on me. Who am I that I can come into the presence of this holy and righteous God? This morning is experienced when we realize that we sin because at our very core and our very heart, that's what we are. We're sinners. We're not good. We may be better than some of the rascals that we can point out around us morally or ethically, but we're still in our inmost being not good. The Bible reminds us there's none good, no, not one. We mourn when we realize that such sinful actions and thoughts can come out of us. When's the last time that your own sin and sinful condition shocked you? Matthew 15, 19, Jesus said, Hey, I want to remind you, it's not what goes into the body that defiles a person, but it's what's coming out of the body from the heart of that person. Out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Have you ever wondered, God, why did that come out of me? Have you ever been embarrassed about that hurtful word? Have you ever been embarrassed about that lustful attitude and pursuit of pornography? Have you ever been embarrassed about that irritability and anger that just flowed out of you and just poured all over somebody else in a hurtful way? Have you wondered, why did I lie? Why did I stretch the truth? Why, why did I do that? There's no reason that I should have done that. Have you ever just wondered, God, why am I so stinking proud that I cannot admit that I was wrong and that I'm the one who needs to apologize and ask for forgiveness? You ever wonder those things? I know I'm not alone. Quit looking so self-righteous this morning. Even as a child of God, these desires, these old sinful thoughts and words and actions, they're still affiliated with us. We have overcome in Christ, and we've been rescued and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But there's a still a battle going on. Romans chapter 7. Can I introduce to you the Apostle Paul? Here he is speaking simply not about his former condition, but it's present tense. He is speaking of his battle with sinful flesh as a child of God. Hey, we're in good company. That's good, isn't it? For that which I am doing, Paul said, I don't understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I'd hate. Any testimony? Don't raise your hand. I'll raise mine. Both of them. I understand that. Paul uses present tense as he does throughout the rest of chapter 7. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, present tense, that is, in my flesh. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, present tense. Wretched man am I. So then, on the other hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Paul said in verse 25, the victory is in Jesus. But here's the reality for every child of God. Though we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, there is still a battle with sinful flesh that we battle every single day with every thought and with every breath we battle. 
And that's why Jesus said, Oh, these that know the blessed life in me, blessed are those who mourn, who mourn over their own sinful state. Paul wrote those words, by the way, at the height of his ministry. Yet righteousness and sinful flesh were still battling in his life. For Christians, mourning over sin is essential to spiritual growth. Godly believers, therefore, perpetually mourn because we perpetually sin. But that godly sorrow ought to lead perpetually to repentance. And that's the way we begin to grow up to be more like Christ in our spiritual life. Here's a question. Have we so conformed ourselves to the sinful world that we are satisfied with unholy living. Therefore, we have ceased to mourn over sin. Let me just ask you, when's the last time you wept over sin? The only sorrow that brings spiritual life and growth is godly sorrow, sorrow over our sin that leads us to repentance. Godly sorrow is linked to repentance, but you know what repentance is linked to? Our own sinfulness. David, after his great sin involving Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah, he repented and expressed godly sorrow in the psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, verse 3. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against thee, O God, and thee alone have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. This is David, a man after God's own heart, whose heart has been pricked with conviction, godly sorrow leading him to repentance, but acknowledging, Oh, dear God, my sin is against you, the holy and righteous God, the God who loved me and continues to love me, and I don't deserve that. By the way, it was this same David that also prayed in Psalm 33, uh, 32, Blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven. Not only the sin within us, got to hurry, the sin around us. The sin of this world, the lack of integrity, the injustice, the cruelty, the cheapness, the selfishness, the outright rebellion against a holy and righteous God should bring us to tears often. I confess, it does not bring me to tears like it needs to. One who truly mourns over his own sins will also mourn over the power and effect of sin in this world. David mourned for the sins of others in Psalm 119, verse 136. Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Do we ever listen to the news or just look at what's going on around us and it breaks our hearts that mankind is running so fast away from God, sinfully rebelling against Him? Jeremiah was nicknamed the weeping prophet. Why? He wept over the sinful condition of the people that he was ministering to. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because of the hardness of heart. It was not his desire that they perish, but they come to him through repentance. Do we mourn over sin around us? I was reading Romans chapter 1. That's a good refresher if you need to go somewhere. Do we mourn that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men? 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Sound familiar? We do live in a post-Christian culture that exchanges the truth of God for lies and worships and serves the created rather than creator. Men and women are exchanging their natural relations for those who are co- that are contrary to nature. Yes, we are sinners and we live among a people who are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, hello, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Oh, dear God, have mercy on us. Paul may have written that many years ago in Romans chapter 1, but that is an indictment against the world in which we live today. Do we mourn over that? Most of us would prefer to condemn the lost world rather than weep over it. Our culture, even inside the church, seeks to avoid mourning and sorrow at any cost. You don't like it, and neither do I. But Jesus said, this life, this upside-down life that I call you to live, this blessed life, a requirement of this blessed life is, is that heartbeat that understands your spiritual bankruptcy, but also that grieves over that brokenness and that sinful flesh that abides within us. And it will until we see Jesus face to face. We don't like sorrow so bad that we pursue pleasure so hard. We do everything that we can to distract us away from being sad or being sorrowful or even mourning. We seek entertainment. We play with our devices to distract us and get our minds off of it. We play more games on our device than we spend time in the Word of God. We escape through pills and substances and are often efforts to avoid sorrow and suffering that are so painful in life. I get it. Pain is real. Sorrow is real. But there's a sense of mourning over right things that is good grief that God says keeps you where you are supposed to be and the posture that you need to be. And that is one of humility and that is one of gratitude and that is one of openness to God doing a greater work in your life. Oh, dear church, there is a highway of tears we need to rediscover. Mourning over the sin within us and the sin around us. D.A. Carson says, the great lights in church history learned to weep. Names like Calvin and Whitfield and Wesley and Shaftesbury and Wilberforce. Here's my question for me and for you. Do we linger and God's word long enough? Do we linger in prayer long enough to feel the weight of our sinful condition, of the sin within us, the sin around us, and even the affliction, suffering that sin brings? When we linger in the truth of God's word that paints the picture of a holy and righteous God. When we linger in the truth of God's word that paints a right picture of our rebellion and sin. Even as children of God, the battle over the sinful flesh and the spirit. When we linger there long enough, we fall down in confession and repentance of sin. And that's when we are walking with those attitudes of being poor in spirit and mourning over that sin.
Does that make sense? Here's the problem. We want a verse of the day that for 30 seconds we can read and check the box that we're on a spiritual journey of spiritual growth. It takes more than 30 seconds to grow you spiritually. God calls us to linger in His presence, to linger in His Word, to linger so the Holy Spirit of God who is at work within the child of God can continue to conform us into the image of Christ, to recognize there's still ugliness deep down inside of me, to recognize even as a child of God, I still sin daily. Even as a child of God, I'm capable of sinning. Any sin that I'm seeing on the news or hearing about from anybody else, and we come to that stage and say, oh, but by the grace of God, there go I. Thank you, dear Jesus, for rescuing me from the devil's hell. I was hopeless and I was helpless. I was lost in my sin. But Jesus, you have rescued me. You got to linger enough in God's presence to get there. But when you come up, when you rise up from that moment, you are filled with the Spirit of God. You are emboldened with bold speech as a messenger of God. And you're ready to go tell someone else that God has done a great work in your life by the power of the gospel. Folks, there is a, a movement of God going on today, right now, at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. It's been there before, but there's a fresh something going on, and it is a mighty power of God. But you know one thing through all the, the articles that I've read and the testimonies that I heard? You want one thing that's prominent in that movement? Tears, mourning, weeping, and repentance. We need to cry out to God to bring revival in our life and through His church here at Liberty Baptist. But fasten your seatbelt. It won't come without tears. It won't come without mourning over our sinful condition. It will not come without repentance from sin. And oh yes, we need to mourn the suffering that sin brings because it's messed up what God created that was good. The mark of a mature believer is not sinlessness here on this earth, but a growing awareness of sinfulness. Our own sin and the sin in this world will bring affliction. If we choose to walk as Jesus walked. If we choose to live this blessed life, then we can lose friends. We may be counseled off of social media. We may not be invited to some other things. There will be affliction. There will be some means of persecution. But you know what? Whatever we go through will pale in comparison of what is yet to come. That's what Paul said. Mourning in this context then is an act of sorrow and repentance over sin and our sinful condition. Number three on your notes. Comfort is promised to those who mourn. Aren't you glad this sermon is a warm fuzzy this morning? Gosh, it's heavy. It's heavy. And it needs to be heavy. But it doesn't end with bad news only. There's good news. The blessing is not in the morning. That's painful. It hurts. It rips our heart. It gives us an honest look at who we are by ourselves. But the blessing is this holy and righteous God through Christ brings comfort to us. 
Blessed are they. That they, again, is emphatic, which means there's a certain group of people that receive the comfort of God, and that group of people are only those who mourn over sin. I want to ask you, are you missing the blessing of God's comfort because you're not mourning over your own sin and the sin in this world and the brokenness and affliction that it brings? Jesus said, they shall be comforted. Don't let that fool you. Beatitudes are today and tomorrow. In verse 4, this future tense here simply means that this blessing of comfort comes after you obey through mourning. That comfort comes after you mourn. As we continually mourn over sin, we shall be continually comforted. Comforted today, in this present life, and forever. Our God, the God of Scripture, is a God of all comfort. Amen? You believe that? God is not only the God of future comfort, but He's the God of present comfort. The Bible says God our Father already has given us eternal comfort, has already given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. 2 Thessalonians 2.16 Jesus said, they shall be. Once you mourn, you get to experience that blessing of God's comfort in your life. That word comfort comes from a Greek word, parakaleo. It may sound familiar. Parakaleo is a word, same word used in the noun version, rendered comforter or helper in reference to the Holy Spirit of God in John chapter 14 and verse 16 where we are told that Jesus was our first helper, but there's another helper of the same kind, of the same essence, that is coming, and he was referencing the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 3 says, Our God, our Heavenly Father, is the God of all comfort. He is always ready to meet our need, admonishing, sympathizing, encouraging, and strengthening. Even if we mourn over loss through difficulties of life, hear me, church, though that's not the context right here, this God of comfort is ready and able and sufficient to comfort us in those moments. Many of us have been there many times before, and we can look back and know that we know that we know this God is a God of comfort, and He's faithful to meet us in that brokenness and bring the strength and sufficiency we need in that moment. Yes, He is. But very specifically in this context, as we mourn over our own sinful state and the sin around us and the suffering that sin brings in the world, as we go there, there is comfort from this God. First of all, personally, when the mirror of God's Word dissects my life and I see the ugliness of my own sinfulness, And when I wake up and in tears say, oh, God, have mercy on me. How could I be so stupid and so sinful? And how could that come out of me? I'm your child. God, you've called me to preach. How can I be that person again? I'm reminded, Tim, that's why you needed a Savior. That's why I loved you when you were not lovable. That's why I sent my son, born of the Virgin Mary, to walk this earth and live that life of perfection that I required of you, but you could not live. He lived it on your behalf. He died in your place, taken on the penalty of your own sin debt, shed his blood, paid in full the penalty for your sin, was buried, and he rose again so that he could give you life and rescue you because you could not rescue yourself. And at that point, hallelujah, 
All I have is a gratitude that I can bring. All I can do is say, oh, hell, King Jesus. Hallelujah. We need some revival in our daily walk with the Lord, and we need to linger long enough for the Holy Spirit to make us have tears over our brokenness. But let us see the light of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Redeemer, and we don't stay mourning and broken in sin. We rise up in victory in Jesus and go forth in the power of His might. That's what He wants. But we like to do it ourselves, and we want to do it in our own strength, and our own might. But personally, the comfort is I have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Let me ask you, have you? Do you know that your sin debt is paid in full? Do you know that if you were to die today, that you'd go to heaven in the presence of your Savior? If not, you can. And not because you've cleaned yourself up. Not because you're good but because Jesus did for you what you could not do for yourself. It's surrender. It's confession. I'm a sinner. It's turning from a life of rebellion, running from God, and now it's turning to trust or running to Him. So, dear Jesus, have mercy on me. Do you know you can be born again if your heart is crying out in repentance and you just say, have mercy on me? God knows what that means when you pray it as a repentant sinner. Secondly, corporately, we are comforted as the body of Christ. You do understand this world is not going to get better and better and better, right? You do understand no politician can make America great again. You do understand it's not in politics. It's not in economics. It's not anything that this world can generate. The greatest need on the globe today is lostness, and God has already answered that need through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we are called to be ambassadors of Christ, messengers going boldly, imploring with those around us to be reconciled to God through Christ. That's our mission. Here's the comfort of the church. We have an answer to the world's problem, and His name is King Jesus. Here's the problem with the world that we need to be broken over is we're living in disobedience because we're keeping that answer to ourselves and we're too embarrassed to live out the gospel. I'm there many times. Why didn't I say something more? Why didn't I lean in on that conversation? Why didn't I ask God to give me boldness of speech? Because that person, I don't know if they were to die, they're going to go to hell. I have a family member. I have a neighbor. I have a friend. I have a co-worker. I have a peer at school. I don't know their eternity. And God has commissioned us. You're carrying the torch today. You're my ambassadors. I want them to know me. But maybe you have to be the one to show them and tell them. But corporately, as a church, here's our comfort. We know this gospel works. We know there's good news in Christ. We know there is hope for a hurting and lost world. And so our confidence as we pray for those to come to know Christ, our confidence as we speak, whether they reject us or not, as we speak Jesus to them and the gospel to them, is that we're speaking a life-giving, life-saving, eternity-changing gospel to those who need Jesus. Oh, dear God, help me to get over myself and my own pride and my own fears and help me to be a bold witness for you. Sometimes, dear church, we need to see some water up here at the altar and it's saying, God, we're just living for ourselves. We're walking in disobedience and we need a fresh touch from you so that like Peter and John, we can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard you do in us. 
we may fear what's going to happen if we do live this upside-down life. Can I remind you the best is yet to come? Paul says, whatever happens, it pales in comparison what is yet to come. This world is not going to get easier for the church. This world is not going to get easier to witness in for the believer. This world may push us back more than it ever has in these United States of America. I believe that's going to be a true statement. But there is a day coming that we get to see Jesus face to face. There is a day coming that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. There's a day coming that where there's no more tears and there's no more sickness and there's no more sorrow and there's no more death. There's a day coming that we know we can celebrate and say, even so come Lord Jesus. But until that day, we have a mission to live out. And we're going to be accountable for it. So here's my challenge. If you don't know this comfort in Jesus to cleanse you from all your sin and give you life eternal, come to Jesus. If you do, will you commit today to linger long enough this week? Linger long enough in the Word and in prayer for the Holy Spirit of God to grip your heart over sin. But when we get there, morning, here's the promise. For they shall be, what? Comforted. How sweet it is to be comforted by our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, oh, we need you. Father, too many times we're guilty of praying. Oh, God, be with me and bless me. We all get there. Be with me and bless me. If we're going through hard times, sorrowful times, difficult times, God, deliver me. Sometimes, Father, we just need to pray, God, break me. Break my heart over sin. Help me to know how to mourn. So that I can know of your comfort. And Father, we're all growing up into this and none of us are really good at it, but this is against our own sinful nature. It's against our flesh and our desire. We don't want to be sad. We don't want to be sorrowful. We don't want to be weeping tears of mourning. We don't want to be Jeremiah. But God, Jesus has been really clear. The approved life, the life that finds favor in Christ is those who mourn and only those who mourn will experience comfort and how sweet that comfort is Holy Spirit will you take us there and as you take us there will you breathe a breath of revival will you allow gospel revival to take place in and through us Father as we Ponder the goodness of you. That you loved us while we were yet rebellious. And even when we fall on our face today, you still love us. Your love is steadfast. You pursue us. You're not finished with us. You convict and you discipline and you grow us through all things. Father, may we worship as we surrender. 
as we testify, oh, Father, of your goodness. Holy Spirit, take us to that place of the blessed life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us for worship today. We are so glad that you're here. We would love to know more about you. And if you have a prayer request for us or just want to connect and learn more about Liberty, you can text the word NEXT to 205-236-3717. We cannot wait to hear from you. And also, we have some amazing events coming up. You can check out our website, lbcchelsea.com slash events for more information. And one really amazing event that's coming March 18th is a huge outreach for Liberty. We are going to be partnering with the city for opening day for baseball and softball. We would love your help. You can find out more about the event on our website and sign up to serve. Hope to see you again next week.